All right. Well, uh, hello and uh, welcome back. I'm sure you missed me. I can't remember the last time I recorded. I think it was with uh, Brooklyn, which was a couple months ago. And, um, you know, it's funny when I uh, uh, thought about doing this podcast, my initial thought was that it would kind of be like a confessional, like, you know, you see on uh, Real World or amazing race or something like that where after something would happen these people would go sit in the booth and they talk to the camera for 15 minutes and so i figured that every time i finish a book i would come in here i'd sit down and i'd talk about the book for about 15 minutes and then um well life gets in the way you know and uh, it gets to be more difficult to find the time and i usually have to do this later at night after the girls are asleep because i i don't want them interrupting and i certainly don't want them coming in and yelling at me and trying to get my attention so i have to wait until they're asleep and so you know weeks go by and i i originally thought i was going to try and do this if not every time i finished a book at least every couple weeks or every week and it's interesting because as i read books i think about things that i want to discuss with you and then you know life gets in the way and work and i i wish i wish i had a job where all i did was read all day and talk about what i read and write about what i read and i'm sure there are there are jobs out there that are like that but um i kind of think i'm a little bit too far along in my career now to try and change paths so unfortunately you have to wait what can sometimes be months <laughs> in between uh, episodes um and and as you can imagine it's been since since it's been so long i've read quite a lot of books and i'm not going to go over all of them but uh, a couple of them i wanted to discuss and um so yeah i think we'll get started now first off I, for whatever reason i've got this song saturday in the park by chicago in my head you know saturday in the park i don't know um i think it's by chicago I'll tell you what, if I'm wrong, if it's not by Chicago, tweet me and tell me it's wrong. Book Therapy 13 is my Twitter, because um, I don't I don't really know, but uh, I can't figure out why that song's in my head. Um, anyways, I've got uh, a little Jack Daniels Tennessee Fire in the glass. Take a little drink right now. A little bit of liquid courage before we start talking about some of these books. Now, um, it's interesting, on top of doing this on Friday night, uh, July 17th. Amy and I were just talking about uh, trying to get away to Europe next year. And uh, I think we're going to spend most of the time in the British Isles, which you probably would think would make sense given uh, the fact that I, list, I I like to read so many uh, Victorian England novels. Gosh, I'm hoping this year, I'll, if not this year, next year when we go to London, maybe I will uh, finally get up the nerve to do the Jack the Ripper walk. Anyways, to start... First book I want to talk about is The Ice Twins by S.K. Tremaine, T-R-E-M-A-Y-N-E. Now, before you try and figure out who that is, it's a pseudonym. Um, and this is a book that was a, a recommendation from uh, Peter James. Now, I'm a sucker for all things twins because because um, I have a twin. And so I'm always interested to hear about how um, twins think. I'm certainly interested in learning more about the dynamic amongst twins because my brother and I have such an interesting relationship that I know people on the outside looking in are always questioning what our relationship is really about and, and how it works, and to try and explain it is really impossible. This book was an interesting twist on the ethos of twins. The idea is that um, they're, this family, this couple has a pair of twins, twin girls, and one of them dies. And for a year after the death of the one twin, They've been calling the surviving twin by the name they believe is this twin. 
And uh, at one point, the twin finally says, why do you keep calling me that name? I'm the other one, the one that they thought had died. And so it's the psychological suspense thriller, a little bit of a mystery. It's told from different perspectives. There's Part of the book is told from the perspective of the mother. And then the other perspective is told if I recall correctly, third person, not from the perspective of the father. However, the third person perspective is the discussion of the story of the father. And so as you go through the book, you learn that there's um, a lot of background. Um, the mother had an affair, the father had an affair, kind of differing issues about how that kind of played into what ended up happening with the daughter that died. And you don't really know for sure what happened to the daughter that died, you know there was an incident, and as the book goes along, you learn, pick up more pieces of what happened, and to top it all off, you have this mother and father and their daughter who, in order to escape, you know, all the reminders of the daughter that is now dead, they move to this remote area in, uh, I believe it's Scotland, where the weather is crappy, and um, there's only one boat back and forth to their house and they're truly truly isolated from the rest of the world and there's a big storm and but things that go bump in the night the daughter that survives is having a lot of issues she thinks that she sees her twin sister in the mirror or in the room with her really a psychologically intense type of a mystery and without giving anything away the the aspect of it that i wanted to share with you is that when the book was over and you think you know what happened, there's a, an, an epilogue, so to speak. And the epilogue basically kind of throws up in the air everything that you thought you knew about the story and about what happened to these twins and the interactions of the mother and the father. And I remember as soon as I finished the book and I read the book mostly at night before I go to bed, which really fucked up my dreams. I mean, I'd be laying in bed sleeping i think and who knows what kind of weird distorted thoughts would would creep into my head but as soon as the book was over i had that that feeling of what the hell did i just read and the only thing i can equate that to is uh the movie basic instinct now if you remember from i think it was 1993 1994 the movie basic instinct with sharon stone and michael douglas and without giving away the entire story of the movie, at the end of the film, you believe that the film is over, if I recall correctly. The screen goes to black, and then it shows the Sharon Stone character again. And she's laying in bed, and she reaches down, and underneath the bed, there's an ice pick. And the ice pick obviously figures prominently into the story of Basic Instinct. The idea being that the woman murdered her lover with an ice pick in the throes of of sexual congress <laughs> and so you think you know whether she is or is not the bad guy in the story and then the screen goes to black comes back up and it's her and the ice pick is below the bed and i remember when i saw it and i've only seen the movie really once but i remember so vividly my reaction at that point was oh my god this potentially changes the entire viewing of the movie and the way I perceived the characters in the movie. And so I remember as I finished the Ice Twins and I read this epilogue, it I had the exact same feeling of, 
oh my God, what did I just read? And how does that change everything about the entire reading experience? So um, I definitely would recommend it. Really, really intense, really creepy, um, a good book, a strong book, and just an, a truly unsettling book. I want to talk about another book called The Dead Assassin that uh, was by a, an author named Vaughn Entwistle. And if you may recall, I reviewed a book last year called The Revenant of Thraxton Hall by Vaughn Entwistle. And I loved it. It was in my top 10 of the year. I couldn't uh, couldn't talk any more highly about it. And if you recall, this is takes place in the 18, um, God, 1890s. And the characters are Oscar Wilde and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And the revenant of Thraxton Hall involved um, psychics and seances and um, things of that nature that took place at a remote um, destination, Thraxton Hall, which was kind of on the moors. Reminded me a little bit of uh, where the Hound of the Baskervilles may have taken place. Anyways, the the dead assassin, which the, the sub- title is The Paranormal Casebooks of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, is the follow-up to The Revenant of Thraxton Hall. And this one, I got to tell you, I liked it even more than the first one. Characters are the same. Oscar Wilde is a riot. He is so funny. And I wish I had more interest in reading his books, his actual books, because um, he's such an engaging character. All the while, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is kind of the calm, steadying influence and the methodical thinker, which you would expect from the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Now, this book takes place all in London proper, which I liked better than The Revenant of Thraxton Hall, which took place outside of London. I am an Anglophile, love everything London, Victorian London. This takes place in Victorian England, in London. And one of the things we've talked about is the idea of the, the fog and the cobblestone streets. Actually, in this book, the fog plays an incredibly large role because it's the fog that kind of is the impetus for the rest of the crimes that are taking place. I'm not going to give away too much more about it away. However, what I'll say is I read a review of it, and one of the reviewers likened this to or or kind of lumped it into this genre of steampunk. And I'm not really familiar what steampunk is. I don't, I've kind of heard it, and I've seen, I don't know, I've got this perception of steampunk as being Victorian England with, like, uh, blimps or, or zeppelins, and machines. So I, I don't know how those three all work together, but um, this book definitely was reviewed as being steampunk. I don't, I don't, again, I don't know what that means. But one of the really cool things about this book was the, 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 there was a creepy factor, which I really dug, where these, um, these bad guys were reanimated to commit murders. And so there's this really great chapter, um, and I'm going to look for you what chapter it is. Um, it was chapter, oh boy, we got to look. Oh, chapter 18, called Invitation to an Execution. And this could have been the single most enjoyable chapter I read in the entire book. Because one of the things that really intrigues me about Victorian England is the um, the prison system. and And so... Not only the prisons, but the the way that the the prisoners were treated and the executions. You you recall 
um, I read The uh, um, Invention of Murder by Judith Flanders, and we talked about that a while ago. Um, this idea that, um, you know, the, the prisons and the executions were such an a, a important piece of Victorian, uh, Victorian life, that it was, a, um, it was an affair, it was a, a scene, it was a social event that you had to go to. And so this chapter, chapter 18, talks about um, the entire scope of the prison system and the execution. The idea being that um, a, a murder has been committed and the quote-unquote murderer who Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Oscar Wilde do not believe committed the murder has been rapidly um, convicted of the murder and has been sentenced to be executed at Newgate Prison. So Arthur Conan Doyle and Oscar Wilde go to the prison to try and get the story from the, um, well, the the soon-to-be-executed prisoner. They want to get the story from him before he dies. And so they go to Newgate Prison, and utilizing Arthur Conan Doyle's notoriety, they get access to the prisoner. And the description of the prison, and then after they do meet with the condemned the ex the the description of the execution was for lack of a better word really fun and i say lack of a better word because look these were harsh conditions and people were treated incredibly poorly but 120 years later for entertainment purposes it was really fun and i really enjoyed that aspect of the book as well as the entire book itself i love the fact that the book takes place in london the entire time the characters were were equal parts creepy as comedic not that the intention is to create a comedic character but they were not comedic colorful colorful characters um and the bad guy who you know it's the bad guy from the start i don't think there's really any question about it but um he he uh, claims to Oscar Wilde that uh, he can bring himself back from the dead. He even tells Oscar to shoot him. Oscar doesn't do it. But at the end of the book, as the bad guy is taken away to... Um, gosh, you know, I don't remember. Did he get executed? I think he was executed. Um, the the postscript to the book... Uh, I got to check and see if it was an epilogue. I don't remember. Does it really matter? You don't care. Was it an epilogue or not? I don't think you care. Um, no, it was not an epilogue. However, at the end of the book, the last chapter of the book, um, you find out that the uh, the condemned, the bad guy, has uh, um, interestingly disappeared, even though he was uh, he was executed. So uh, this is this is really becoming one of my favorite. Uh, I can't say favorites because it's only been two books, but it's an author I really look forward to. Um, equal parts creep as as excitement and and fun. And uh, if you're interested in Arthur Conan Doyle, you're interested in Victorian England, you're interested in, I don't know, steampunk, um, check it out. The Dead Assassin by Vaughn Entwistle. Oh, what do I talk about next? All right. Nelson DeMille's Radiant Angel, the follow-up to whatever the last John Corey novel is. I talked about the book before this one called The Quest. Um, I think I talked about it last year, and I, if you recall, I wasn't particularly thrilled with it. Now, Nelson DeMille has written a lot of books, um, but the he, he does have a, a series, so to speak, um, involving his character of John Corey, former NYPD detective, who's now become a member of the Joint Task Force for Terrorism. And some of the books that he's written involving John Corey have been 
really, really exciting. I mean, uh, there have been six books so far. Plum Island, The Lion's Game, Nightfall, Wildfire, The Lion, and The Panther. Now, The Panther was the last John Corey novel, and it really dragged. I don't remember how long it was, four, five, six hundred pages, whatever it was. And it had long periods of time where nothing seemed to happen. And I think that when Nelson DeMille brought this latest book, this latest John Corey novel to his editor, perhaps his editor, after having reviewed or seen The Panther, thought, we need to cut it down because The Panther was so slow at times. So let's cut out some of the BS and let's get right to the thrill aspect of the book. And the concept of this book is that John Corey trails a Russian diplomat to a house on uh, Long Island and figures out somehow or some way the way John Corey does, because he's a master um, investigator, that the diplomat has designs of sailing a yacht into New York Harbor and basically letting off an atomic bomb. Awesome idea thoroughly terrifying idea but the book was only 300 pages and when you're waiting two years if not longer i don't even remember when the last um last john cory book was it could have been three years ago when you're waiting for the next john cory novel and i'm telling you some of nelson demille's books are long um not necessarily john cory's although the the lion i read in paperback was like a lion's game was like six or seven hundred pages in paperback um I know Upcountry, which was uh, the sequel to The General's Daughter, was about 700 pages. The Gatehouse was six or 700 pages. When you're used to reading books of that length from Nelson DeMille, to get a 300-page book, you got to think it's a kind of a phone-in. And I liked the book, but I was disappointed it wasn't longer. And this one felt more like a novella to me, kind of like a bridging the gap between two books, than like a standalone novel, even though that's what it was. And so uh, my hope is that the next Nelson DeMille book, the next John Corey book, is a little bit lengthier, a little bit meatier, still having John Corey's um, legendary wit and sarcasm, which I resonate, which resonates with me truly because I'm, I feel like I'm on the same wavelength as that. But I just, I want it to be longer. And it's interesting, you know, I, I've been reading a lot of um, thrillers lately that involve international intrigue. We're talking about We'll talk about the Tom Clancy novels coming up. And I keep thinking, wow, I'd really like to have a book that finally settles into the home soil because I'm tired of the Russians or the Afghans or the Iraqis or Al-Qaeda or whatever it is. And yet now reading Radiant Angel, which takes place here on American soil, I, I was pretty disturbed by it. Um, and I think it's one of those, be careful what you wish for. Maybe I don't want things to be here in in, in um in the United States. I think I prefer them to be overseas because the idea of any type of mass terrorism occurring here in the United States is uh, is truly, it's unsettling to me. Um, anyways, so to get back on, on kind of terrorism, might as well tell you about the book I just finished called, Tom, uh, called Under Fire. It's by Grant Blackwood. It's the uh, Tom Clancy series, the Jack Ryan Jr. novel. And I'm not going to talk about this book at all. All I'm going to say is, I miss the old days. You know, I look at the inside of the book and I look at the list of books that Tom Clancy's written and I look through the first three, six, nine, twelve, fourteen books that Tom Clancy wrote before he took, for whatever reason, some sort of a hiatus. 
and you're talking about books that are legendary. Not legend, wait for it, Derry, legendary. We're talking about Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, Dead of Honor. And I can tell you, even though all these books I read more than 20 years ago, if not longer, I can tell you what each one of them was about. I might not be able to tell you what the bad guy or the, the, the villain's name was, but I can tell you large pieces of the book. I can tell you, as I mentioned on many occasions, my favorite book of all these was Executive Orders, which I know a lot of people didn't like, but I liked it. That was my, my favorite. I can tell you a lot about that book. I can tell you about the, the constitutional issue of the, um, of the killing of the president and vice president in the Capitol building and how that affects the appointment of the new president and the legal issues that were f were covered during the book. I could talk about the the name of the terrorist whose name was Darye and what his terrorist act was, which was releasing some sort of a, a biochemical agent in a in a car show, you know, at the convention center. I can tell you about all these books. And yet since Tom Clancy Tom Clancy's characters were rejuvenated six books ago. Yeah, six books ago. I, I can't tell you what any of them are about. I can't tell you who the bad guys were. I could give you vague answers. I'm sure one of the books took place in China. One of the books was the Middle East. One of the books was Russia. But I think one of them was Mexico, Colombia, drugs, something like that. But other than that, there's, there's nothing that stands out about them. And I don't know why. The books are lengthy, but they're lengthy because of the way they're printed. And I think that, I think that the publishers, I, I, I understand that the readers of a Tom Clancy novel are expecting something long. And so they cut the margins so that the, page, so that the, the I guess, the number of words on a page are less the margins are much more narrow, larger, narrower, whatever. The col the reading columns are narrower. And so the book looks longer. And so I have this hefty book that I just read, which was only 500 and something pages. And so for whatever reason, these books just don't feel the same. They're good. They're, they're enjoyable as, as throwaways. But they don't resonate with me the way the early Tom Clancy or the original. I'm going to say the original Tom Clancy did. I mean, Cardinal of the Kremlin, I remember, and I didn't like the book because I didn't understand it. I was young at the time I read it. But I remember something about a submarine and, and, and smuggling Russians out of Russia. <coughs> Excuse me. And I remember the, the submarine captain, Marco Ramius from the Hunt for October, who was in the Cardinal of the Kremlin, who was sailing the, the, the submarine. And I remember Without Remorse taking place in like the 60s, and it was some sort of a murder mystery involving prostitutes, and it was at the same time the, the rise of the Mr. Clark character. And I just don't have that with these latest books. I liked them. I really liked the first book that finally that had come out after so many years called Dead or Alive. That was like a thousand pages, and I know it wasn't really a thousand pages when you cut back for the margins and stuff like that, but for whatever reason, it felt real to me whereas the rest of these just feel and i know they're not written by tom clancy especially since he's died but they just don't feel the same and um i'll keep reading them 
because I love the characters. But I don't have as much of a connection to, to Jack Ryan Jr. and Dom Caruso as I do to Mary Pat Foley and Jack Ryan and and um so I don't know. It's it's one of those things where, you know, you can't go home again, but I kinda wanna go back in time and, and go through the experience of reading these books again. And and I've brought the Hunt for October back to my to be read uh, uh, file or list or shelf because I do kind of still want to read it again but I know that it's not going to be the same as when I read it when I was 14 years old and um, you know we change our reading styles change and fuck authors die <laughs> so it's it's never going to be the same and you know it's a little sad to me but that's way it goes. On to bigger and better. Now, a, a series of books that you know I love, that I've, I've really, over the last year, have uh, put them at the top of my list is the Roy Grace novels by Peter James. Not going to talk about it. I'm going to tell you that I love the series so much that I had to order the new book from the UK because it's not going to be available here for still another couple months. Uh, it's called You Are Dead. It's actually the first serial killer in Brighton and Hove, which is the the beat that Roy Grace walks. And um, there is a particularly disturbing part of the book, which was so well written and so creepy. Um, loved it. And um, there's another little tidbit in there about Roy and his wife, Sandy, who for all these years he thought had been dead. So uh, I'm going to tease that. This is the 11th book in the series. I encourage you to start at the beginning. I encourage you to read all the way through. You will not be disappointed. Eat. Look, you got to suspend disbelief. Of all these books, you have to suspend disbelief. But Roy Grace and his partner Glenn Branson and his team are so enjoyable. Peter is so good at taking seemingly unrelated people and and having them all converge in in one event. Um, yeah, got to wait another year to the next book. So uh, You Are Dead by Peter James. Um, it's my favorite. Michael Connolly, Peter James. Uh, what can I say? Those are, those are the two big ones right there. Um, I want to talk about Stephen King's latest book called Finders Keepers, which is a sequel to Mr. Mercedes. Now, it's not really a sequel. Um, I read Mr. Mercedes last year, and I really enjoyed it. Stephen King is one of those authors that I wish wrote less horror because I really enjoy the way he writes. And I would love to read more of his books, except for the fact that I'm worried that they will scare the shit out of me. And interestingly enough, as I go through the beginning of the book, there's no list of all the books he's written because he's written so many of them, and you know so many of them, that I guess they kind of figure, why are we going to tell you the books he's written you already know? But this is an interesting book, especially in light of the release this past week of Ghost Set a Watchman by Harper Lee. And the reason why is... The story of Finders Keepers is basically about obsession and it's obsession with an author and an obsession with the author's character and his books and how far some people will go to uh, because of this obsession basically. 
so the idea is that there's this author in uh, I want to make sure I get the year right because it takes place over a long period of time 1978 and this author is a recluse he was a incredibly famous Pulitzer Prize winning author who had written these books about this main character and this character was sort of like a, a, a spokesperson for a generation and over the course of a few books he this this character went through these changes as as characters do and then the author stopped writing the books and it disappointed a lot of people and in fact it disappointed this one character in particular and he believed that this author had written more books but had refused to publish them and so he and a couple of guys go to the author's house and he lives in a remote area of I don't know, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, something like that. And basically, it's in New Hampshire. Oh, that's right. Um, basically, they they hold the guy. They imprison the guy. They um, rob him of all his money. There's three of three guys. Two of them rob him of all his money. The third guy, he wants the manuscripts that have never been published. And so he gets the manuscripts, they end up killing the author, and then this guy with the manuscripts ends up killing his two friends. And for a seemingly unrelated crime, um, this guy ends up going to jail. And so before he goes to jail, he buries the manuscripts and all the money that they stole from this author's house. And he, hi he buries it, hides it in a, in a tree stump behind, back in the woods, kind of behind his house. Well, 30 years go by, 30, 35 years, whatever it is, it comes to present day. And the person who, or the family that lives in the house now that the murderer lived in, he goes exploring one day and he finds this chest which has the manuscripts and the money in it. And he uses the money to help his family. It turns out that his family were, uh, his father was a victim of the, uh, of the Mr. Mercedes crime spree. He wasn't killed, but he was uh, certainly seriously injured, lost his job, and the family fell on hard times. So he uses the money that he found to help his family out, and he doesn't tell them it's from him. And then he, just, he realizes what these manuscripts are. And he brushes up on this character, and then he reads the manuscripts that tell what happened to the character. Now, the bad guy, the guy who had killed the author, he was very upset with the way that the character was left by the published books. Apparently he was unsettled by the way the character had changed. And he knew, just knew, that the character had to have come back full circle and become the character that he was at the beginning of the series of books. And so this, fast forward to 2015, this young kid finds these books, becomes enamored with the character, and then of course reads the rest of the books. But he realizes that he's running out of money, he needs to help his family, and so he decides he's going to try and figure out how much he can get for these manuscripts that basically all of society thought didn't exist but had been clamoring for, at least for, well, during the time that the author was alive. Well, wouldn't you expect, wouldn't you believe, that the bad guy finally gets out of jail and he goes looking for his stash because he's been waiting 30, 37 years since he went to jail, to find out what happened to the character that he loved so much. 
He didn't have time to read the books by the time he was arrested, so he stashed the books, and he'd been waiting 37 years to find out what happened to these characters. Of course, when he gets to his hiding place, he finds out that his chest is empty, money's gone, books are gone, and he ends up tracking down our, our hero to get the manuscripts. And it devolves from there, and, and the, the main characters, the heroes from Mr. Mercedes, they come to the rescue. They're all intertwined. The characters are all intertwined with each other. The book itself, I really enjoyed it. wasn't as good as Mr. Mercedes because it wasn't as scary. Mr. Mercedes was creepy, but in a, in a good way, for as much as you can say creepy in a good way. Um, creepy in a good way for me because it wasn't too horrifying, but it was just enough unsettling to be unsettling and this one wasn't quite as like that it was it was much more straightforward but it made me think especially with um with the release this week of the new harper lee novel the concept of who a character belongs to because we as readers we become attached to our characters especially when you're talking about characters who go through long series of books and an example would be um, Alex Delaware or my or or my or um, <laughs> Harry Bosch, or coming back to to more recently Roy Grace. This idea that we own the characters, and obviously we don't, but we as readers we take these characters into our hearts, into our minds, and we begin to treat them as if they were real people. And we begin to take uh, propriety over these characters, like we own them. And if you'll recall, going back to a couple episodes ago when, when I we talked about Harry Bosch and the TV show Bosch, it was a perfect example of what I'm talking about, this idea that Harry Bosch is mine and I don't want to share him with the rest of the world. And I will only share him with those people who are who who have demonstrated that they're they're allowed to receive Harry Bosch, not the casual observer of the television show, but the readers who have been with Harry throughout the entire run of the series of twenty plus years. And we forget as readers that the characters are not ours that they belong to the author. And it's the author's right to do with the character whatever they want. Now, obviously, the author's number one main goal is to sell books. And they will keep in mind the idea of how the public perceives their character before they take a drastic measure regarding their character. I mean, they, they are aware... Look, Michael Connolly is aware that if he were to kill Harry Bosch in the next book, he'd piss off a whole bunch of millions of people. So he's not going to do that. But the character is his. And if he were to decide that he wanted to take Harry Bosch in a completely different direction, that's his prerogative. I don't own Harry Bosch. You don't own Harry Bosch. Nobody owns Harry Bosch. Michael Connolly owns Harry Bosch. And this idea that we as a reading public are entitled to anything is is wrong. Sure, the author would like to continue to please his reading audience because that sells books, but he has no obligation to do so. And in Finders Keepers, it really 
connects with that issue. For whatever reason, this character, this author, this Rothstein, had decided that he didn't want to publish any more of these books involving his character Jimmy Gold. He had written the number of books that he wanted. He published them. He won his Pulitzer Prize. And then he decided he didn't want to write, he didn't want to publish any more books. He'd written them, but he didn't want to publish them. And this obsession with the character is what drove our, our bad guy in Finders Keepers to finally track down the author Rothstein and steal the books. And yet, take into consideration the recent publication of Harper Lee's sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. For 50 years, if not longer, 65 years? I don't even know. I, I promise. I, I don't know. No, I think To Kill a Mockingbird, I think the movie was 1960, so we're talking about 55 years at least. Atticus Finch, Scout, Boo Radley, the cavalcade of characters, they've taken up a position in American history, because they have, I mean, history, not just American literature, but history, because people still look at Atticus Finch as the perfect model of what a lawyer should be or what a father should be. He's transcended literature and become iconic. But for whatever reason, Harper Lee, over these past 50 plus years, has decided not to publish this other book, Go Set a Watchman. And who are we as the reading public to reject her and her reasons for doing so? It turns out that some of the books, uh, some of the reviews of the books that I've read lately have been very, very critical of this book. And it's possible that Harper Lee, after she'd written To Kill a Mockingbird, went back and looked at this book and said, you know what? I don't want my public, I don't want my readers to read this. It turns out that Ghost Set a Watchman, my understanding, had been written before To Kill a Mockingbird. And her editor had recommended that she pull out the parts involving Scout as a child and develop those into its separate novel. And that was what became To Kill a Mockingbird. And yeah, this, this idea or these theories that Truman Capote had helped Harper Lee write that book, I'm not going to discuss that because I don't really care. But there's a reason why she didn't publish that book. There's a reason why it sat on her shelf for 55 years. And I don't understand or I don't I don't I don't get I don't conceive of the circumstances that gave rise to the recent publication of Ghost Set of Watchmen. There's a lot of strange issues. Apparently Harper Lee is not doing well health wise. Or maybe she is. I guess it depends upon whose opinion you believe. Because there's certainly when Harper Lee's sister was alive, her sister was the, the keeper of the Harper Lee name and was a protector of all things Harper Lee and protected this manuscript very, very closely. And yet her sister died and all of a sudden there's a lawyer. Fucking lawyers, right? All of a sudden there's this lawyer who says, oh no, she wants this book published. And yet that's not necessarily the truth. We don't know what the truth is. We've heard different stories that Harper Lee knows exactly what's going on or she's senile. What's the right answer? I don't know. She's so reclusive that she won't come out and just say what she wants. And I think, I think that's an initial indication of what she really wants.
And I know she's been reclusive for all these years. And yet, if now, in 2015, she wanted this book to be published, I gotta think, gotta think she would have said something. She would have come out on her own. But she hasn't. And so the question that I ask you is, what right do we, as a public, to demand the publication of this book? And what right do we, as a public, have to read this book? Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't read the book. Although I'm kind of suggesting that you don't fucking read the book. Did she want this book published? I don't know. And because I don't know, then why read it? It's not my right, right? I don't own the character. She does. If she doesn't want these characters brought out into the open and they're published against her will, what right do we have as readers? It's not for us. She had a reason why she didn't publish that book. Shouldn't we respect it? And if she wanted this book published now with the idea of she's getting old, she's on her deathbed, whatever it is, shouldn't she tell us? And if she's not telling us, then what right do we have? You know, the problem with this book is, and I've heard as I've read the reviews, because I've been, I've been on top of this. This is one I've been really interested in because I feel, you can tell I feel so powerfully about it. I've been reading some of the reviews. Now, I originally was talking with Amy about it, and I said that this is a book that can't fail because whoever reviews the book negatively is going to be castigated. And yet, the reviews I've read... Not from, well, I guess, I think I read one of them was a Publishers Weekly review, so that was a pretty legit publication, but I've also read just regular readers' reviews on Goodreads. They're not liking the book so much. And the reason why is because Atticus Finch is not who they thought he was. For as long as the book's been around, as long as it's been since you first read the book or you saw Gregory Peck in the movie, you've created this idealist persona of Atticus Finch. And yet this book, I'm told, I've read, I believe, throws all that into disarray. That Atticus Finch is not who we thought he was. That he's a racist. That he's a bigot. That he's against segregation. This is not the Atticus Finch that we all put up on our pedestal. So what right do we have to read this book? Do you think that maybe Harper Lee intended to publish this book, and yet after she saw the critical acclaim, and she saw the way that Atticus Finch was revered, revered people are still naming their children Atticus if you look at the AFI American Film Institute or whatever list you want to look at at top heroes in film history Atticus Finch is in the top five I guarantee you so after all of that is it possible that Harper Lee went, holy crap, I can't publish this book? I can't publish this book? My public will hate me. I've created this bastion of the legal profession. I've created this picture-perfect father 
this role model for the masses. But that's not really who he is. That's not the way I originally created him. That's not who I intended him to be. I intended him to be a reflection of the time. Keep in mind, she wrote this book. The, the Ghost of the Watchman was written in contemporary times. You forget To Kill a Mockingbird was told in the past tense, right? I mean, it took place in a past tense, a past time. Ghost of the Watchman was supposedly, my understanding, told as a contemporary novel taking place at that time. Do you think that she then thought about it and said, I can't make Atticus Finch into this. So what right do we as readers to demand the publication of this book? And if not demand it, what right do we as readers to flock to it until we get clarification from the writer herself that this is what she wanted? And knowing all of this, were we really clamoring to find out what happened to Atticus Finch? At the end of the book, did we really finish the book and say, all right, then what happened? No, we didn't. We didn't need to know what happened. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what happened to Atticus Finch after the book ended. Because anything that happened would have tarnished his image. And maybe Harper Lee knew that. Maybe she knew that the caricature that she created wasn't perfect. And yet the public took to perfect. They perceived perfect. And she said, I, I can't change that. I can't change the way the public sees my character. Notice what I said. My character. Her character. This is an author who perhaps understood the responsibility that she had or the responsibility she felt to her readers to not tear down her own hero. Can you imagine Michael Connolly passing away and 30, 50, 60 years from now, finding out that he wrote a book in which Harry Bosch, a product of the worst upbringing, the son of a prostitute, a murdered prostitute, grew up in foster homes, had finally gone crazy and become a serial killer? Can you imagine the outcry of the reading public? Michael Connolly wouldn't do that. Or if he did, do you think he'd come out and say, this is why I'm doing it? And yet Harper Lee didn't have that opportunity. I'm interested. I'm Look, I'm not going to lie. I'm interested in seeing what the book says. But I didn't like To Kill a Mockingbird that much to begin with. But I certainly don't want to feed money and support something that I don't truly understand. I don't know what Harper Lee wants. And and the same as in Finders Keepers. 
the author Rothstein had kept the manuscripts of Jimmy Gold, his famed character, his Pulitzer Prize winning character, the, the, uh, the, the character that spoke to generations. He kept those manuscripts hidden away and he never published them. Who are we, the public, to demand that they be published? We don't have that right. We may be disappointed. We may be upset. We may be heartbroken. But it's not our right. Just like it's not anybody else's right to publish an Atticus Finch novel other than Harper Lee. And I'm not sure that she gave her approval. So there's that. Now the last two books I want to talk about are, I'm going to talk about them together because they, they sort of go hand in hand. The first one is The Harvest Man by Alex Grecian, who, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know what I think of Alex Grecian. And the other book is I, Ripper by Stephen Hunter. I have not been more excited about two books than I was about these two books. And in fact, I got them on the same day. They came out on the same day. And I had pre-ordered them, and they were delivered to me the day they came out. And I had a nice stack, I Ripper, Harvest Man, the Ice Twins, sitting on my desk, took a picture of them, tweeted it, posted it, Instagram, whatever the fuck. I was so excited for these books. Now, if you recall, the Alex Grecian books are novels of the Scotland Yard's Murder Squad. And the Murder Squad, just to recap, was created by Scotland Yard after the Jack the Ripper murders. Because with the Jack the Ripper murders, Scotland Yard identified that there was a new breed of criminal out there murderers and so Scotland Yard created the murder squad the this the harvest man is the fourth book in the series now the third book you may recall the devil's workshop reintroduced the character of Jack the Ripper the first two books had nothing to do with Jack the Ripper the third book Jack the Ripper is back and it interestingly enough proposed a creative yet thoroughly possible version of the Jack the Ripper ethos of what happened to Jack the Ripper. The idea being that this underground society of vigilantes had tracked Jack the Ripper down, had captured him, and held him in a cell in the catacombs? I don't know, catacombs. Somewhere underneath London, in the tunnels of London. And in the Devil's Workshop, Jack the Ripper escapes. And The Harvest Man is a continuation of that book, although Jack the Ripper doesn't really figure in too prominently. He is much more on the tangential. And yet he does end up figuring prominently because he takes our hero, Walter Dake, prisoner at the end of the books. Now, comparing The Harvest Man, which... Uh, <laughs> Alex Grecian... The, uh, you know, I was talking to my, my brother, and I told him a story about an author... I don't remember who the author was. And she was uh, asked the question of, where do you come up with your story ideas? And she said, I think about the book that I'd want to read, and I write it. And so I was talking to my brother about that, and I said, I told him the story. And he said, well, Rob, I know uh, what book you'd write. It would start with, it was a dark and foggy night on the cobble streets of Victorian England. And um, that's what the the Alex Grecian Murder Squad books are. Uh, truly, if I could write a book, it would be like this, like these books. Um, compare that 
to I Ripper. Now, I Ripper by Stephen Hunter, who I've never read before, although my brother had read many of his books. The concept of I Ripper is, well, it's the story of the Jack the Ripper murders, but chronicled by a newspaper reporter of the time. And the newspaper reporter of the time ends up being George Bernard Shaw. Big fucking deal. Can you tell, by the way, I didn't like this book? I was so excited for this book. And I was so disappointed by it. The resolution of who Jack the Ripper was was uninspired and uninteresting. And in fact, as soon as the character comes onto the scene, you know that's who it is. There's no question that this is the bad guy. The methods that are used, quote-unquote, to track down Jack the Ripper are completely bizarre and asinine. Uh, I, I mean, the, the idea is that Jack the Ripper is tracked down because of linguistics. That at one of the murders, I don't remember which one, he had written something on the wall in blood, and this character, this linguistics professor, analyzes the linguistics of the writing on the wall and narrows down to like three people who Jack the Ripper could be. Which, spoiler alert, the linguistic professor is Jack the Ripper. Big surprise. We knew it as soon as we saw him. But this book was really offensive to anybody who knows anything about the Jack the Ripper murders. It was really offensive. First and foremost, there is no discussion at all about the world famous, now infamous, from Hell Letter. This letter that Jack the Ripper supposedly wrote to the newspapers. Now the concept of this book, by the way, is that our main character, Jeb, J-E-B, who we end up finding out is George Bernard Shaw, that he's the one who creates the initial letter to the newspaper and coins the name Jack the Ripper. But it's, it's come on, it's only like 200 and something pages? All right, I'm going to get you the specifics here. Oh, yeah, wait, 200 and, hold on. Wait, wait for it, wait for it. 298 pages. And there's no mention of the From Hell letter. There's no real intrigue. There's no real suspense. There's no real horror. It's really just blech. And I compare these these two books, The Harvest Man and I Ripper, and I say, okay, I don't know who Jack the Ripper was. I know there's a lot of theories. And frankly, I don't really care. I don't know why Jack the Ripper stopped when he stopped. And I know there's a lot of theories that say that Jack the Ripper had come to New York and that he that there were similar murders at the you know, immediately after, not too long after the Jack the Ripper murders. And I don't really care. I kinda like the idea of not knowing because it's not like a it's not like a Michael Connolly or a Roy Grace unless oh, not a Roy Grace. It's not 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 like you know, a murder mystery book where the the bad guy is going to be somebody you know. In, in fact, I'm worried that if they ever do discover who Jack the Ripper was, it's going to be somebody you've never heard of before and it's going to be a letdown. I think the idea of Jack the Ripper as being an unknown is what makes him intriguing. 
But the idea that, or the idea, not the idea, but the the supposition, not even a supposition, just the, the story, the story that Jack the Ripper was tracked down by vigilantes and held captive or killed, I kind of like that a whole lot more than the Stephen Hunter version. The Stephen Hunter version that was, it was a linguistics professor who had some motive that didn't really make any sense and then was killed by a reporter. I don't know. Seriously, it was only 298 pages and I had to fight to finish it. Fight! I had to struggle. I had to push so hard because I didn't fucking care. And that just destroyed the Jack the Ripper novel for me. And I I would say that that was probably one of the most anticipated books for me of this year. And it was so incredibly disappointing. Um, The last book I want to talk about, the last book, and we're going to keep it real short. Ooh, as I take another drink. Oh, and a Tennessee fire is fire. Um, the Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. Now, you're probably wondering, what, why is he reading H.G. Wells? This book's been around for a hundred and something years. Well, I'll tell you. Somebody I know uh, turned me on to this podcast called The Dead Authors Podcast. And uh, I'm not going to tell you too much about it, other than there's a comedian who portrays the author H.G. Wells, who takes this time machine, travels back in time, and brings these dead authors to the current day and interviews them. Thoroughly entertaining. Some of the best episodes are when H.G. Wells interviewed. Um, gosh, she did, he interviewed Mary Shelley. Um, L. Ron Hubbard was fascinating. Robert Louis Stevenson and a whole bunch of others. Anyways, after hearing a bunch of these podcasts, I figured that I might as well read an H.G. Wells novel. Now, I did read... The Island of Dr. Moreau last year sometimes, and that was pretty fucked up. Weird, weird, weird. Um, but I found The Invisible Man at the used bookstore for a buck, and I figured I might as well buy it, because it was only 200 pages or something like that. And I really liked it. Um, it was pretty darn cool. Very fast-moving. Um, pretty creepy, I think. I think that the reading public at that time, whenever it was written at the early 1900s, probably was pretty pretty creeped out about the idea of an invisible man running around but i think that if you were to write it today i think it would make a pretty damn exciting book more exciting than it was back then because one of the things i thought was missing from this book was the psychological impact that is wreaked upon somebody who's invisible now the invisible man at some point takes three or four chapters to describe everything that's happened to him from the time he became invisible until the circumstances where he was at that time. And some of it is kind of interesting. Like, if you're invisible, you can go into a uh, department store and steal whatever you want. But keep in mind, the stuff you steal isn't invisible. So if you were to steal it, um, it still looks like that stuff's floating away. And you can't necessarily put that stuff on because then it draws attention to the fact that you're stealing it. So very interesting, the practical application of being invisible. But I'm more interested in the psychological impact of being invisible. The idea that you can't interact with people, that 
people are afraid of you if you do interact with them. The idea of how isolating it is. And so I, I would just be interested in, in it from that standpoint, the idea of the invisible man as a psychological study and how, I mean, it's it's pretty clear from the book that the invisible man went crazy. Um but I'd be interested to see how he went crazy or why he went crazy or a more thorough, in-depth um, analysis of, of how he went crazy. But, um, yeah, but I really liked it. Um, I did. Uh, real quick, a couple of the books that I read that I really liked. I read HHHH by Laurent Benet, which is uh, a book about the attempt to assassinate... Um, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, which was really cool. Uh, I especially like books that have short chapters, and this one was a little bit more than 320 pages, and it had 250-something chapters. I really liked it. I read Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Um, yeah, now I understand why that book wasn't such uh, much, why it hasn't been considered as one of his greats. It was okay. Um, I'll give you this. It was certainly short. It was only 300-something pages. Not his best. Not his best. Uh, Steve Martini's The Enemy Inside. I wish he'd get back to writing true legal thrillers and less international intrigue. Um, Inspector of the Dead by David Morrell, another Victorian England. So much better than uh, Murder is a Fine Art involving the character Thomas De Quincey. Really like this one much more. Um, you'll recall I, I reviewed Murder as a Fine Art last year sometime, or two years ago, Who I don't remember. Um, and I, I kind of gave it a three stars. I remember as time went on, I kind of liked it better. This one I thought was much better, really much more smooth. And um, yeah, you know what, that's it. I'm done, I'm done, uh, I'm done. Um, I gotta finish my drink. Um, thanks for listening again. Please tweet at me, uh, Book Therapy 13 or Rob Cohen 13. Find me on, uh, what's my email? Book Therapy 13 at gmail.com. Rob Cohen 13 is, uh, Rob Cohen 13.com is my website, my blog website, which I haven't written in a while, but you can still find me there. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Um, so this has been Book Therapy episode, who knows how many. Actually, you know what? I got to tell you, I'm kind of amazed. I, I've done a, f a lot more episodes of this than I expected. I mean, we're up to, what, 36, 37, something like that? I mean, that's that's just amazing. Um, so, yeah, thank you for letting me line. Oh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Do me a favor. Go to iTunes. Rate it. I know somebody rated it. Didn't like the clinking, clink, clinking of the ice. I tried to cut back on that. We do take your suggestions very seriously. Um yeah, go on iTunes, rate us. I'm interested to see what you think because I listen to it. I know my brother listens to it. I want to hear if anybody else listens to it. Love to interact with you. And as always, I'm looking for book recommendations. Um, so other than that, this is Rob Cohen. Thank you for letting me lie on your couch. <laughs>